You are listening to Making It in the Toy Industry, episode number 110. Welcome to Making It in the Toy Industry, a podcast for inventors and entrepreneurs like you. And now your host, Ajel Wade. Before we get into today's episode, I've got to tell you that we recorded this episode live and shared that live stream inside of our Facebook group. If you want to be notified whenever a live stream option is available, head over to thetoycoach.com forward slash community to join our Facebook group of aspiring toy creators, toy retailers, buyers, everyone that loves this toy podcast are in there. Mm. Hey there, toy people. Ajelle Wade here. Welcome back to another episode of the Toy Coach Podcast, Making It in the Toy Industry. This is a weekly podcast brought to you by thetoycoach.com. Today on the podcast, we are going to welcome Dan Klitzner, known TikTok-wide and worldwide as the inventor of Boffit. Dan is an industrial designer and creative director of Kid Group based in San Francisco. He has created three number one toys, including the infamous Boffit, but also Simon Air Hyper Dash, and he's also the co-creator of the award-winning Perplexus line. Dan has received two Idea Awards and four Toy of the Year Awards. That's major. Okay, currently Dan and his wife Alicia are focusing on developing BopItForGood.com to launch crowdfunded games and toys that donate profits to support charity programs for kids and underserved communities. Now, Dan doesn't know all this, but in today's conversation, we're going to learn about his entire toy journey, his invention process, what happened when he first pitched Bop It, and in the end, I hope Dan's going to share with us his perspective on what it takes to make it in the toy industry, and we talked about it already, and it's all about getting your idea right. We'll learn what that's all about later on in this episode. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ajelle. Really, really happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. I'm excited. I know the Boppin inventor. I know a TikTok star. I I'm think. The, the oldest TikTok star. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do you get trolls talking about how you shouldn't be on TikTok? I get all sorts of things. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Just okay. to jump in, what the best one, they don't get sarcasm when they're very young. So when you say something sarcastic, they say, you don't get it, 100-year-old man. And so I responded with a video that said, technically, I'm only 86. But And then I went on thinking that that would really really be funny and of course half of the kids are like you're not 86 you know and then there was this whole debate of how old i really was so yes you have to go way big to exaggerate (laughs) wow oh lord the children (laughs) these days okay to kick off this conversation i just want to hear about how you started in the toy industry did you start in the toy industry did you start somewhere else like how this all begin for you my life kind of began when i discovered industrial design because I was miserable, didn't know what I wanted to do, and actually had gone into engineering at UC Davis and was really unhappy. And luckily, my father had heard about Art Center College of Design and, and thought it might be from a photographer he was working with, thought it might be something I would like. And when I opened the brochure, I pretty much cried. I was like, that's what I want to do. And I didn't even know it existed. I didn't know what industrial design was in high school. I like making things. I like drawing. I like doing all the things that an industrial designer, you know, might do. I just didn't know what it was called. And so that was when I started to kind of understand that you could make things for that weren't art. They weren't just for self-expression sake. I needed this whole thing just appealed to me. Functional, problem-solving, artistic. 
aesthetic, all of it. And I love making models. I love the drawing. I love it. Like everything about it, I just love. And so that's really where it started. And to cut ahead, I got into toys because I used to collect them. I used to collect tin toys and I loved the sort of old things like that, that were very like the painted metal. It's sort of how I got into it. I loved playing games growing up. And I, I just answered an ad in the San Francisco Chronicle many decades ago that said toy designer, freelance toy designer needed for a new toy company. It was a company what? called Discovery Toys. And I, as an industrial designer, went in and started, got work with them and probably for the next five years designed most of Discovery Toys product that was not imported, like all the custom stuff. So that's really how it went from not knowing what I wanted to do to, you know, within a few years working on toys. And that that's really where it started. That's pretty cool. I wanted to say, I also wanted to study industrial design. I studied toy design, right? Mm -hmm. I remember I was applying to the toy design program at FIT and the Savannah's College of Art and Design program. Mm. And I got in to the SCAD Mm. program and the toy Mm -hmm. design program. But it's just, it was like time and money. I'm like, do I want to essentially start over for a year industrial design program after having two years in college or go into toys? What I love about industrial design is there's like fundamentals that you learn there that I feel like with toy design, we go into the visual aesthetics so much that we kind of gloss over like the fundamentals sometimes. Mm -hmm. So what was your favorite part about like just studying industrial design? I think I've probably, in hindsight, realized that, uh, one, the drawing, I love, I still sketch and draw as much as I can. And the thinking with, but the other part that I didn't realize at the time was the tactile ergonomics of it, that that I really love designing three-dimensional things or making things that aren't three-dimensional, I would say. Like, if you look at a lot of the work I've done, Perplexus, Bop It, these are all things that would have been flat. And I sort of like to make them more three-dimensional and it was more intuitive. So I think it appealed to me and that these are all things you hold with your hands. Mm-hmm. I wasn't interested whatsoever in, in architecture. I didn't relate to the world as how am I fitting into the space? I seem to right. really love things and I love touching them. So I'm very sensitive to that. Over time, when I look back, that's the consistency. What was the first thing that you ever invented? Well, speaking of ergonomics... I don't know if it's the first thing I invented, the first thing I licensed. Okay. You know, I designed a lot of toys, but I actually came up with Shovel as a concept for Discovery Toys at the time, and they thought it was too weird. So I went and, and that's when I found out you could license toys to other to toy companies. Since I was a freelancer, I didn't work for them. Right. And this Shovel that many people say they've seen or have had, it's I've now 30 it. years old, at least 30 years old. And it was this idea for a very simple, blow-molded, one-piece if you know what blow molding is, it gets puffed, you know, and it, it makes it all at once. It's not pieces that have to be assembled. And I just had this idea from playing in the beach, watching dogs digging, having your fingernails scrape on the sand when you're digging in the sand. And I just came up with this ergonomic thing. It's designed for a kid, but if you're, it's designed right and you put it in there, you know, your hand grips here and this braces against here. So when you're digging, you can put two of them on, you can dig. And it, it got knocked. Uh, I licensed it, didn't understand about patents at the time. Didn't The toy company was a very small toy company in the Midwest. They didn't patent it. So I made royalties on it for a few years, and then it just started getting knocked off everywhere. Mm. So now it's shareware, but I'm kind of proud of it being 
probably one of the most prolific things I've ever invented. It's probably sold more than Bop It in its knockoff forms. When I, I can be in other countries and see it. So I'm kind of proud that the first thing I ever really invented is actually still out there 30 years later and growing. It's pretty validating. I love like simple solutions to complex problems. And it, it's a simple mm-hmm. solution, but it's also a really simple design. How did you come to that first idea? Were you like intentionally knowing you had a problem? Did you travel to the beach a lot? And you were like, this is a problem. I need to solve it. Or how did it come to you? Yeah, it was the project was design a set of sand tools that they wanted. Discovery Toys wanted me to design something. And I ended up doing a very simple set for them eventually. But it was just conceptualizing. And like an industrial designer, you kind of go back into the ergonomics of something first and thinking of digging rather than thinking of let's redesign a shovel. The classic thinking is let's think about digging and what is the pain point of digging and how do you make it more fun? You know, with toys, it's not solving a problem as much as how do you make it something possibly novel you haven't tried before, a new way to do something that engages people. But in this case, it was how would a kid want to dig? And and by watching kids, they get on their knees and they dig like this, you know. So yeah. it was that it very simply, I think many problems, when you have a problem to be solved, it's actually easier than when you're just trying to create something fun for fun. I agree. Yeah. I designed yeah. within limitations so well. As soon as someone's like, whatever mm-hmm. you want, sky's the limit. I'm like, oh my God, oh no. Yeah. And price, I knew this would be very inexpensive to make. Mm-hmm. And compared to a lot of ideas that are so complicated, most people think of things, but they don't think of the price and you know all of that and the durability. So it just came out of that, you know, probably of of a bunch of ideas. I have the sketches still of a lot of the early ideas and then built one out of foam, like surfboard foam, fitted around, tried it, you know, made a, made some vacuform prototypes of it and eventually got it licensed. So I want to talk about that licensing process a little bit. Did you know what you were doing? Did you just walk in with your prototypes and say, Hey, I heard there's this thing where you might make this for (laughs) me and pay me for it. Can we do that? Well, I had done a little research on it. And I actually had at the time I I was doing uh, pretty well with architectural illustration. I didn't like designing buildings, but I was really good at drawing them and there were no computers at the time to do it. So I was pretty doing some industrial design, designing some toys. I sort of took on any jobs I could. And in San Francisco, there were a lot of architects there that I did their renderings for. Mm -hmm. So I would just, they'd give me plans and I would sketch what it should look like. And eventually I hired people to help me do that so that it was sort of keeping people busy and keeping the cash flow coming in. So I didn't have to rely on, I'm just going to go invent things and hope I make money two years from now when the royalties come in. So I had a good business model. So the downtime in between was when I would work on things like this. And I actually hired someone who was an ex Fisher Price marketing executive who someone had connected me with in the area. And I said, can I hire you to come in and tell me a little bit about this and evaluate my ideas and tell me if you think they're ready to pitch to toy companies. So he said, sure. And I sort of had him come in once or twice a week. I did that before I really ever approached anyone. And it was my way of sort of finding out how do I do this before? And I also was hoping for some connections that if he thought the ideas were good, he'd sort of connect me to some of the people he knew, which he did. I pitched this to a lot of companies actually at the time. How many people did you have to pitch to before it got picked up? I probably showed this to 15 to 20. It wasn't that they didn't like it. Like Fisher Price, they just thought 
they couldn't really make money on it. A lot of times you'll pitch ideas and say, well, it's a good idea. Nobody thought it wasn't a good idea. Yeah. They just said, it's only going to be a few dollars. How much can we make on it? It's not really worth that and paying you a royalty. So some of the ideas just aren't the right company, which we'll talk about. Yes. Right idea, right company, right yeah. time, right mm -hmm. execution. Yeah. It was maybe only one of those mm -hmm. or two of those, the right idea and the right timing and the right execution, but not, not for that company, not for that relationship. So the, it's about finding the right company that this fits their model and fits their line and that they needed something innovative. So I found this little company after many companies, this company thought they might like to do it. I started talking to them. I didn't really use an attorney. I did have someone that I talked to who had a contract and helped me do it, but I knew I wanted to just make it. It was my first thing. I didn't want to overcomplicate it. I just remember negotiating. One tip I will give is even if you've never done it before, the best word you can use is normally, because you're not lying, but you're saying when someone says this, you say, well, normally I get 6% and 6% of what and when, and maybe it was something else. Anyway, I just sort of joke about, it. I think I remember sort of tossing out some normally. And these guys were not big negotiators. They just wanted to do it. And we came up with it. And unfortunately, they were kind of new. I don't know if they'd ever licensed something before. So we didn't do the patent searching. We looked to make sure it wasn't done before. But I thought they were going to apply for a patent. And they thought I was going to apply for it. And so it was never patented either way. <laughs> so they wrote me a nice letter at some point. We really sorry, but we don't think we can pay a royalty anymore because everyone's knocking it off. And eventually they stopped making it. But that, of course, in the big scheme of things, taught me a few things about what not to do. So at that point, everything I've done since then was about making sure it was clear the company I was licensing to agreed that they would apply for patents if it was needed, or there was other things like that. And then the deal, every deal you do, you learn a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I think that over time, I developed relationships with a better attorney that I could sort of not charge too much, but kind of make sure that the templates I got from toy companies weren't just the bad one, but the, the better one. Because yeah. <laughs> as everyone knows, in any business, if you get what's called a boilerplate, it might be something that's very much to the toy company's advantage or that company's advantage versus when you have your, here's the standard things that I've learned are negotiable. So I think that's just a lot of work. Even if you could hire someone to say, this is what you want, you kind of have to go through it to understand why certain things are important in a contract like termination. One of the biggest things I think you learn in the beginning, and I know for a lot of people who are making it in the toy industry, the most deceptive thing isn't about all the money and all this and how much you're going to make. It's actually kind of like a prenuptial. How are you going to get out of this if it doesn't work? You are getting married to a company with this child, mm -hmm. your product. And if you don't think about what happens if we split up, you don't know who gets the baby. That's a bad thing. So you have to make sure that the most important thing is if you're going to license a concept to someone, literally the most important thing is the termination clause. What happens when it's not selling enough? What triggers that? Do you get back the improvements they made to it? Do you only get back what you started with? There's just a right. whole lot that I think, you know, not to get too much about contracts, but that is a thing I remember learning a lot about in the beginning. And then eventually I have a partner, Gary, maybe eight years later when I started, when he became a partner, he sort of takes on a lot of that because he's a very 
more patient with it mm-hmm. and good at it. But I still know what it all means. And I still really understand what the key points are. So it really helps your inventiveness too. You kind of want to understand what you're really offering and how to value all those things. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I know everyone might be waiting for us to finally talk about Bop It, the most iconic invention of yours that's touched so many lives. (laughs) So I have something to share with you. I got a really special video from a friend of mine named David Wallen, who actually dressed up as a Bop It for Halloween. He was yelling, Bop It, Bop It, twist it. And then he was acting as like the timer. He's the voice that's so much easier than putting electronics in it. I've actually seen people with electronic versions that's brilliant because it's much more interactive and funnier like there's some people that built some crazy things with bop at burning man in the 25 years i'll have to say there's been some of the most amazing uh, tributes that i've never even met the people i just kind of see them posted which is kind of amazing okay we got to talk about this invention so first off <laughs> like what inspired the idea number one well it is the shortest version I can say about that. <laughs> Looking back, the real trace of it, a lot of people have heard this, it started as a remote control. Mm-hmm. But how? why did it start as a remote control? It's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Because a remote control is something that, of course, controls a TV, mm-hmm. right? It you, you push a button and it tells the TV what to do. Right. So how did it turn from that into a thing that tells you what to do, yeah. right? It, yeah, yeah, it yeah. literally reversed itself and, and it turned the person into the thing that not the TV. And I've always looked at how did this happen? Because it definitely started when one of my freelance clients was Memorex. They were known for audio tape, but they were also doing some products and someone had connected me with them and they wanted to show the future of Memorex and have me work on totally cloud nine concepts that weren't possible yet. In fact, I designed an Airbud, this really cool earring headphone that wasn't possible yet, but it was really cool. It looked you know, like this little silver clip on your ear and it had the whole idea. I don't know how we're going to do this, but this was the future of audio and it was this beautiful silver line and oh just an aside from invention standpoint the guy who hired me was i thought really really good at sort of empowering others to think outside the box he said i want you to envision the future of memorex audio equipment and i don't know what it is but all i'm going to tell you is it's going to be called project monet Oh, interesting. Okay. So it made me make these fairly beautiful, serene, artistic looking electronics, things that were like that. And part of it was remote control. And so I started designing remote controls. And after that project, it was actually at CES, won a bunch of awards. They hired me to do real remotes for them, remote controls for the TV, which were just starting to be universal. The ability to do a universal remote each TV came with its own remote, each device. There was no right. such thing. So right. they were jumping on this thing of universal remote. So I was really into designing all these remotes. And it occurred to me while I was still doing toys as well, I was doing toy design and toy invention. Yeah. And I thought, well, what about a remote for kids? If they're universal, that means a kid could use them on any TV. And came up with a bunch of ideas, actually using the concept of Nickelodeon with its crazy at the time that was very much uh, 95 94 nickelodeon it had this whole new more irreverent feel to it right about the sounds if you think about that nickelodeon cartoons 
more of this sort of colors and things. So I designed a few remotes that were kind of crazy looking like a Nickelodeon remote. And one of them uh, was a hammer, like a clown hammer looking thing with bopper on both sides. I called it the channel bopper and you Mm -hmm. bopped it on the table to change channel. One way was channel up, you turn it around and you bopped it the other way, channel down. Uh So channel up and channel down were the bops. And there was a twist knob. Since I wanted to make things three-dimensional and physical, I didn't want to do anything like it was already on a remote. So you bopped to change channels. You twisted a knob to turn the volume up and down because that was more tactile than just an arrow button. And you pulled the bottom to turn it on and off. I was just thinking how to make it as three-dimensional as possible. So those were kind of the XYZ axis. So I took a remote that normally is a thing you hold in your hand that is completely sort of, you don't see any movement in the person. And I did have this mantra of make the person move to interact with the product. It was yeah. something I'd heard someone mention, watch watch the person, not the, the product. And so I was trying to actively make a remote that would be fun to watch the person use rather than just have it sit in their hand. You know, what's really funny, you design, like the final design of Bop It is very ergonomic, even your shovel's ergonomic, but the the way that you came up with this idea was almost the opposite of like making a product efficient for people's use, right? Because it was like taking your control. That's a great insight. You're absolutely right. That's it's so the funny. opposite. An ergonomic approach to industrial design would be, how can I solve this problem and make it as ergonomic and easy to use as possible? Right. Oh, I'll put it in someone's hand and make the thumb fit exactly the right distance. Yeah. And instead... I have never thought of it that way before. I went for what's the most fun? Yeah. Uh, what makes this the most interactive? Yeah. And the most interactive was to make it as three-dimensional and physical as possible. Yeah. Yeah. As challenging, challenging as possible. It's so fun. It's funny. I think the irreverence of Bop, it sort of comes from that DNA of, I'm going to bang a thing on the table to change channels. <laughs> I don't like this show. Bam. Oh, that bam. Is good. Yeah. So that's what I uh-huh. thought was funny about it yeah. was that you could go through all the channels by just smacking. Wow. So that's where it came from. And I showed it to a lot of companies. In fact, I did a line of silly remotes called Remotes Out of Control for <laughs> Micro Games of America, MGA. They licensed mm-hmm. it. There's a few of them out there. And there was a pizza, there was a surfboard, funny things that were shaped like things other than a remote. They were yeah. all though based off of remote with buttons on it. Right, so those right, were right. easier for them to produce. Yeah. I kept trying to tell them you should do the hammer remote. They said no. And literally he says, I want to do the pizza instead. It was a slice of pizza that looked like a remote control with a pepperoni. So I always think if not for the pizza remote, you might have done the hammer and bop it. Never would have happened. Oh wow. So The hammer remote, the channel bopper, I was convinced this is cool. It's a whole new thing, remote controls that are toys. And so I pitched it to probably eight or nine companies. I can't remember. A couple really liked it, but Mm -hmm. said it wasn't for them. Mm -hmm. And eventually it was pitched to Parker Brothers a couple times. And in one time, Tom Duesenbury at the time at Parker Brothers just sort of sat there. I remember him. He goes, maybe it's not a remote. And this is the lesson I've always liked to say is take anything someone says. I think we all know the yes and principle, but, you know, really understand or ask questions. What do you mean? What do you mean? What's not a remote? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe it's not a remote. And it was just that inkling. He didn't know what it would be, but it was just the fact that he said that in the meeting. It triggered me thinking my first impulse was, of course, it's a remote. That's what's innovative about it. What, what would it be like? 
let me think of 10 reasons why you're wrong to yeah. say, right? I could just feel my blood curdling, like, this is my invention, and you're telling me maybe, it, you know, and instead, hook a breath, let it sink in, is what I say. Really think about it and try it. So you can sort of see it's easy in hindsight with inventions to go where, but those little things about paying attention and letting your mind jump and trying it out, those are really important. And luckily, I sort of thought, oh, maybe not. So the next journey, if we're really getting into it, of what, you know, it wasn't direct line thinking, but sort of worked was experimentation. There's something here. Let me mock something up, literally with foam core and a soundtrack. Wait, hold on. We need to talk about that because I have seen this video that you pitched (laughs) with. And inventors today are like, are you serious? They would not let that fly. How did you sell this thing with that okay. like initial foam core? How'd you do that? Teach us your ways. I will <laughs> teach you, but it is very misunderstood oh, as to okay. why that video worked. Go ahead. So I'll tell you, yeah. it's very specific why it worked. Okay. If you're trying to pitch an idea in a video, there's a bunch of things you can't pitch in a video. Like mm. if I'm pitching you a drone that I fake in a video, and it's made of foam core. And I say, imagine if this drone could work on no batteries and hover. And you go, yeah, imagine. That'd be amazing. But you haven't <laughs> proved it. I could think of all these things that you can't really yeah. prove. Or here's a game that has four dice. And when you roll it, look, isn't it fun? Will mm-hmm. you buy it from me? It's an amazing game. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work mm-hmm. because you can't really play it. Right. The secret to Bop It was an audio game where it tells you what to do and you have to do it and it speeds up. So that video wasn't just a video to pitch it, it was the soundtrack to try it. So when I sent it in, and when I pitched it in front of the guy, Bill Dorman, eventually, I had him with the video, I said, now don't look at my video, just listen and try to play it while you listen. Oh, so the soundtrack was the meat of the play pattern. So- Of course, and the physicality, having a prop that you had to do actions to quickly, Mm-hmm. As they fired at you and sped up, I said, until yeah. you experience it, you don't know. It might be funny to watch, but most people say that's too easy. Going back to my invention process, that was my first impression. That'll be too easy. It needs to have memory, like Simon. I kind of did another mock-up, yeah. trying to mock-up with memory. And I could just tell that's too hard. Tried it with four moves. And it was really that moment of going, what if it was just one move at a time? It really is probably the biggest epiphany of that was a thing that if you don't try it, you're going to say, oh, don't, that's too easy. No one will ever get it wrong. It's just a stupid thing. And the surprise was, I mean, again, just whether it's intuition, Mm -hmm. it was this concept that physical actions, like rub your tummy, pat your head, are exponentially more complicated than pushing buttons like on a Simon, where there is no physical challenge to Simon. It's simply totally cerebral. Can you remember this pattern? Bop it is the exact opposite. It's no memory. Can you keep the physical XYZ straight in your head Mm -hmm. when someone's giving you audio processing, of which I just sort of had this hunch. So trying it out with that video was the first thing that convinced me, Mm -hmm. oh, that is kind of challenging. It literally, the sound said to twisted and I could feel myself on this phone call model hesitating. And those are the moments, right? Just paying attention to that little voice that says, I think there's something there. The fact that it was so simple that I could prove it with a soundtrack and a prop was 
that is also one of the great tests of an idea you might uh-huh. have. It's the learning from that whole thing was the right method pitch for the right product. Yes. There might be seven ways to yes. pitch a product. Mm-hmm. Should you do a prototype? I don't know. What's your product? Mm-hmm. You know, should it be a sketch? Should it be this? And who's your audience? So there's a lot that in hindsight you can mm-hmm. say that was the right way to pitch that product because yeah. you could test it. You could try it with an audio tape. Now, that might not work at all. It won't work at all for anything that isn't, I think, testable, unless it's such an amazing visual that in three seconds, you've convinced someone it's the best game in the world. It also, though, has to be the technology in the thing you're pitching is obvious. Yeah, you're making me think back. One of the first few items I invented, and I love it because it was so simple, it was called Zip Screens, and it was like a tearaway screen printing packet. And I remember we made the mock-up in the office with like, a heat seal machine and some tape and we created a paint packet and we had to fake the way that you would open it with like cutting a hole in an exacto and then putting scotch tape over the hole and pretending like it would be like a tearaway open. But what I'm realizing now is like, it was the heart of what this was, was like an easy to use one time squeeze. Like you squeeze out the paint, the squeegee is attached to it. And it's like a one time fast use screen printing situation. Like the heart of it could be explained in that simple, like tape together mock-up. Whereas like, I've had people pitch things that are like, you know, interactive dolls, and they want to do it with like a cell sheet or with a foam core or something. But the heart of that product can't be shown with a foam core. There is no right answer. But there are wrong answers. (laughs) You know, and there may be four right ways to pitch something. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the fun and the creativity is how am I going to pitch this quickly? with repeat success Mm -hmm. to really attract the right person Mm -hmm. and the right thing and including yourself, right? A screen test or whatever you call it is like, I need to see if I'm convinced. So before I invest more time, can I convey this idea and quickly and convincingly and visually like you did with that product? Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was very intriguing to see it work. Yeah, it was amazing. We were like, oh, wow, this works. That is a really important. If we do nothing else today, but talk (laughs) about that, slow down and think about that aspect. What is the best way to convey it as simply as possible and convince yourself that it's doable and, and, and it's worth it. Before I get into your, the right way to create and pitch a product, I want to ask, what do you see, if anything, that's different from inventing and pitching concepts now than it was when you first pitched uh, Bop It? Some ways, it's the core thing is the same, right? <laughs> At the top of the pyramid is if you happen to have something that's just people get right away and you've presented it the right way. Yeah. A few things, though, it used to be, if you want to know the old days, (laughs) Toy Fair was a little more fun because, one, it was in person, which we haven't had in a couple of years. But the other being that I had a lot more meetings with the decision makers, like the guys at Tiger, the presidents of companies for smaller companies. There was a lot more in-person pitches with someone who could just say, we're doing it. And they'd literally pay you or write you a check at Toy Fair we're taking this idea off the table and it was a lot of fun because you're like, wow, I just came up with that. Someone just wrote me a check for it. That's motivating, you know? So those days seemed, there was a heyday there in the, I'd say in the nineties where that did happen. And and everyone kept saying to me, you should have been here 10 years ago. (laughs) So I was on the tail end of the, once you've got great relationships and great ideas, really 
I think, be successful if you worked hard and had really, really good ideas and the right people to show them to. And you would get a lot more. Today, I think there's a lot more process involved Mm -hmm. in the inventor relations departments and the sophistication of how you submit things and whether they've seen it before and who has to prove it. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the biggest true difference to me from my experience. There's some better things about it and some harder things about it. And so I'd say that's the bigger thing. The better thing might be that it's, well, one, it opens it up to more people, a little more democratically. I think that the use of video, I was one of the first people to use video. Honestly, (laughs) you would not believe I had a little Sony video player with the small cassette tapes, Mm -hmm. the small version of not the VHS, whatever the next, you know, compact Oh, a VHS or something. The I don't even think I know that one. Digital video. Yes. Yeah, small. They looked almost the size of a tape and they were digital. So I had the idea. No one apparently had seen anyone do this before. I found this little thing in, in probably mid nineties and I would put a cassette, you know, that I put my products on video and pitch them from a little screen that flipped up. I would pitch them on this thing. Oh my gosh. And so I would have more people in the meetings go, Come in here and take a look at this. It wasn't the idea. It was, look at this little cassette this guy has. Look at that. Look at that. Can you believe that? I'm like, yeah, yeah. What, what about the idea? It's like, no, but look at that screen. How much did that thing cost? Wow. And then the next time I'd come in, they go, oh, you got to see this. And it was like, okay, can we look at the ideas now? Oh, uh, that's because there's a lot of old school kind of. We all need to start pitching in the metaverse now. That's what we need to do so we can get attention. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe go back to retro and find one of those things oh. and have everyone be just as amazed today as they were yeah. then because they've, never, they, they've still never seen one before in 20 years. But that also, though, got me to... So that changed in a way, but I think I was always thinking, wow, if it looks good on video, it's actually more convincing sometimes than in person because you can prove that in 15 seconds, it can be exp- like a commercial. So now they can think yeah. marketing, they can think we can sell this. Got it. Okay. Right. Wait, I have to say something because you made me so many light bulbs. So when you were saying you have to think about how you are pitching your idea, and then you were saying something about the experience, like you're thinking about the experience for the person. So I'm, I'm looking at Bop it. I'm like, okay, so the experience that you had to make sure your pitch could convey was this like unexpected mental, physical challenge. Like that is the height is what you had to focus on making sure that pitch could convey to somebody. And that's why the foam core model with the soundtrack worked. Cause what you had to make them feel was this like mental, physical challenge. And that was the focus. And then I started thinking with my own product. I'm like, so for me, it was, I didn't know this at the time, trying to convey this unexpected thing where a messy craft could easy, fast and clean. Mm -hmm. Like that's like the unexpected experience that would sell that idea. So I love that. Love it. Just wanted to summarize it. Okay. Now let's talk about getting it right, if you don't mind. Can we tell the story of how you came up with it? Yeah. I don't remember what year. But I was asked to speak at a class, I think it was Academy of Art or California College of Arts and Crafts in San Francisco, a design class about invention. And on the way there on my bike, I thought, I don't know quite what I'm going to say. It would help if I had some sort of acronym so that people could think that I knew what I was talking about or just make it easy. I was just trying to structure my talk and it just popped into my head. You can't sell your idea until everything's right. Or I don't even know if I thought of it in that way. Or like, what's words live by, right? This idea of right. I thought of idea. I was trying to think of 
an acronym for the word idea. Uh, and I was like, idea, design. And I knew it was about the people that, that I wanted to talk about how really knowing your audience, the, the relationships, and also the relationship. So I came up with right, sort of fitting it in to that was relationships, idea, timing, and execution. And there's been some other letters people have added over the years. I can't remember. Uh, right on stands for something. I can't remember. But the, people try to add more. And you can add more that are important, but usually things fit into one of those four categories. And the way I explained it, and honestly, this came to me a few minutes before the talk, was that it would be like a table where each of the legs of the table is one of those things. So the R, the I, the T, and the A. Think of them as a table, and your invention has to sit on top of the table and not fall off. And it has to be really tall and higher than the other invention tables of all the people trying to make you see their idea. Okay. And if you don't have those four things, you can't sell, your idea won't sell. And the idea was you need relationships mm -hmm. first before the idea. You have Everyone knows you need a good idea, but if you're showing it to the wrong people, it really makes no difference at all. Mm -hmm. So how do you get those relationships? So I believe from like I've described, I went out and thought them out, really understanding it's not just having relationships like who do you know that can get me in? It's something you need to know about them. What yes. do you know about them? What are they looking for? What what did they do last year? What failed for them? So you don't pitch in the same thing. You can go on and on about the, what goes under our really research and relationships. You might call them the same, but I like to just say relationship to you and relationship to the people you're collaborating with. It's people and building that relationship because over time, I've had many relationships I've invested in where it literally was easily 10 years before I ever sold them any. And we all know that. We know that there's no shame in showing things that aren't right for that company. You're just waiting till the right thing pops up. And Hyperdash was one of those things, as I've, I can tell later. So think of this table. It's got mm -hmm. an R, an I, a T, a D. What happens if you had an idea and that leg of the table, you think this is the best idea I've ever had, right? but you don't have the other things. It means that I didn't come with the prop here, but I'll use my phone. It means that instead of here, it's going to, the table will be crooked and things will slide off of it. So just a nice visual metaphor. You say, well, so how do you make them all equal? The idea, the relationships idea, of course, the timing, which is the same thing. You, you may have the great idea, the great relationship, but you pitch it at the wrong time, mm -hmm. which you can affect by your research as well. Timing isn't luck. Oh, you had lucky timing a little bit. But if you think about it, you might be able to, to predict that. Mm -hmm. And execution is, if I was in a design class and gave 10 students the job of create a fun remote control, I'd get 10 completely different solutions. Yeah that's the execution often or 10 different price points or 10 different companies. Like you think about execute. So many people go, I had that exact idea five years ago and I pitched it to that company and they ripped it off and they didn't do it. You know, you'll hear all these stories. You go, Did you really have the exact same idea? Let's yeah. look at the execution. Let's see whether you really did and did learn from that. So those are just sort of the general reason. But what I say is that's not a way to predict or invent something. This is a way to evaluate your own, are you ready yet to pitch it? Yeah. I think I mentioned to you earlier, think of the I when you spell right as a lowercase I and the rest of the letters as capitals so that you really focus that on what you're trying to do is basically make each of those legs a 10 out of 10. Because most people fall in love with their ideas and they think that's, 
what an amazing idea. And they try to convince everyone how great the idea is, but they don't pay attention to the other three things. And so what I advise is, and for myself, which I don't follow as often as I should, is if you say, this is the best idea I've ever had, my leg of the table is, is as tall as it can be, <laughs> pretend that it's half that height. And what would you do to make it twice as big? It's really important to say, no, it probably isn't yet as good as it can be. Yeah. So strengthen, and then you do the same thing with each of those legs. Oh, I know who, exactly who to show this to. But do you know, how would you make the R as tall as it can be? How is the timing improved? Execution, you got, I love the way this came out. Well, maybe you should see if you can make it twice as tall. And so it's this process of, it won't sell until it's right. And right to me is when you have these four legs of the table taller than you ever expected so that it's up above all of your other ideas, not just other people's. Cause you know, well, if you're like me, you have a lot of ideas. You just gotta be careful where to invest time. And if you're really honest with yourself, you have to sort of go through that process a little bit to say, this one's worth it because I really believe every leg of that table is really better odds that I can pitch it, sell it. It's actually, I didn't miss something like maybe it's not a remote. Right when someone says that, and that's the execution I thought was perfect because who wouldn't want a remote you slam on the table? And someone says something, you have to be honest, say, Well, that just changed everything. So, in, like I said, it's not real wisdom or process except to help check yourself on being honest with how do you really push yourself to make everything as strong as possible before you go out and pitch it. Yeah, my favorite part is that you have that lowercase because I get people all the time saying, Jill, I've got this amazing idea and I want to talk to you about it. And if you don't have the wherewithal or the belief or the time to execute that idea to develop those relationships, then it might as well have never existed. You might as well just hand it to somebody else. The execution, the relationships, the timing, everything. Great. I love it. I yep. love it. Love it, it. it. On TikTok a lot or Instagram, I'll throw out ideas. I had an idea that's really great. This this game that Goliath did that failed. It did not fail. People who got it loved it. It just didn't sell very well. So I put it on TikTok and said, what do you think it should be? Should it be themed differently? Should it be this? Tell me what you think. And it did really well, like one and a half million views very yeah. quickly. Wow. And it was people. And I was amazed. Maybe I had 500 comments of pretty good ideas of what they would do with it. And it just shows how everyone sees things kind of different. It was it was not maybe for, mostly about execution or ideas like they made comments. But you get a few comments of people saying, I've got something. Can I contact you separately? I, I know what you should do with this. And I say, no, I'm sorry. I can't collaborate with people like that on this. The trains left the station. You know, this is just for fun of mm -hmm. getting people's minds working. And then they posted something that said, don't give this guy any ideas. He won't work with you. He's just baiting you. He's just trying to steal your ideas. Oh. And my response was, that's interesting because I thought I'm the one posting my ideas. <laughs> yeah, so this yeah, is a public yeah. place. Anybody here can take any idea that anyone suggests and do whatever they want with it. But you know what? That's the hard part. Like I pretty much say, look, these ideas, as you can see by 500 people having great ideas, go for it, everyone. You know, because you'll find that like what you say is you got to pick which idea you're going to go for. Mm -hmm. The idea itself is important, but not as important as I'm going to get those relationships. I'm going to figure out the time and the execution. Like, okay, that's what I'll usually do to people when they go, I got an idea. I'll split it with you 50-50. Yeah. And I'll go, I got an idea. I'll brainstorm with you for 15 minutes, give you all my ideas, and you can have 100% of it. 
and my blessing to go for it exactly, because yes. you're in for a couple of years of work. So the first time we talked and you told me about, right, I told you about Gail who put on uh, TikTok, I think she'd broken up with a boyfriend and she's like, I need an idea for a song. And somebody said, why don't you do a song, a breakup song with the letters A, B, C, D, like letters right. of the alphabet. And then she came up with a song, A, B, C, D, E, F, U, and your sister. And it's a huge song, but the idea was a tiny part of it. She had to execute execute it and get it out there. So I am excited that I feel like for some reason, TikTok is this catalyst for sharing ideas. And I'm hoping that it will help loosen up the toy industry a bit in that way. Maybe not with companies, but with individuals, because I feel like everyone's so tight and so afraid to share, but it's stifling creativity in some areas. Yeah. I'm planning on showing ideas first on TikTok. Like somebody can do this if they want, or I'm going to take how much people like it or don't like it and go to a toy company and say, I just put this on. I got 2 million views. I think there's something here, right? What can I lose? If you're quick to an idea, again, if this is your only idea you've ever had and you've been saving it for 10 years, I don't (laughs) advise that you, this is saying, if you're in the business of coming up with ideas quickly and testing them out, be willing to say, "I'll, I'll gain more from exposing it than I will from hiding it for the next five years. We got to repeat that. He says, you will gain more. If you're in the business of coming up with many ideas, you will gain more from exposing it than hiding it in the next five years. That is such a great point. I have students with great ideas that are those kinds of ideas where they're afraid to share it, but the only way it can really grow until they have like an investor is if they share it. I'm sold on it. And I'm not saying again, that you won't have someone very much take an idea and run with it. You might inspire them but they will probably execute it different than you. And I absolutely know the pain of if I do that and someone figures it out first and does it and is successful, it will hurt. It's not that I think it's a great, you know, but I'm just interested because of the the amount of times you have ideas. If you do this as long as I have Mm -hmm. and many of our inventor peers, where you can have great ideas sit there for a year and a half at the company and they drop it. And then you're back like, I just want to, maybe I would say more accurately, I would take a certain percentage of the ideas that lend themselves to this, throw them out there, get, from what I've seen, get the most incredible feedback uh, from people. And, you know, really just sort of those either just for the processing of it Mm -hmm. or not to say, I'm not collaborating with anyone. This is just an open forum. And literally anyone on this forum can run with this idea. That's Mm -hmm. the only thing I can offer. I'm not stealing your idea. I'm the one that come up with a, Here's what I got. So I'm already offering a free idea to bounce off. If anyone else wants to contribute, go for it. I think that's a model that really puts the power into the person that decides to do the work and to pitch it. And someone might say something and they don't have the relationships you have. Well, if some kid gets to say, I gave this guy an idea and that was mine, I could show you in the thing. I don't know legally what this means, but I do know that maybe I'm too optimistic. But in the grand scheme of things, if I was eight years old and I could say one of my ideas helped this person create that toy that's successful, mm-hmm. that's a pretty nice credential to have. And maybe it gets them into inventing and maybe it gets them this. So I'm going to just sort of throw it around there. I just think it's a really disruptive new way mm-hmm. that things that get viral have a better chance for the creator, I think, to possibly sell them than when you slog it out for a number of years. Okay. Before Um, I let you go, you mentioned TikTok and I know you have a massive TikTok following. 
A lot of people that listen to this podcast have been wondering, should they get involved with TikTok? Where do they begin? Would you apply the same right principles to developing TikTok concepts? How did you Mm. like get a following there? TikTok was simply pandemic related. I didn't even answer emails and still don't really. I'm very bad at social media, never had an Instagram. I just wanted to try it because I've always loved film and video and I come from a family of actors. My both parents were Broadway actors and sort of have it in my... Yeah, in my heritage to be a ham. So I just wanted to try funny stuff. But it was also a way to celebrate the 25th year of Boppet, just to see what would happen and engage people in stories. And it was also because I want to launch some of my own products, little games and things. And I thought if I have an audience, I can try them out and maybe sell them directly or do a Kickstarter with people that know that. So it really started as a combination of that. And I just think, boy, there's people who have millions of followers that simply don't follow right whatsoever. They just (laughs) do stupid videos, as we all know. It's better not to think of the followers at all, but what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Does it serve you? I love the creativity of it. I like trying stuff out and knowing within a few minutes if people like it or not. The big one I just did was a Machine Gun Kelly. It's an advantage to have Bop It as a thing that I created because everyone knows it. So he just did a thing at Christmas where he broke a Bop It by accident and it happens to be on TikTok. You can see Megan Fox in the background. You can see her saying, shaking her head. And one of her sons off screen is like, you broke it? You broke it? The whole story within a few seconds went viral. He had 20 or 25 million views on it. So I decided that morning to make him a bop it, an unbreakable machine gun Kelly bop it and put it on as a response video. So I actually made it's right here, this bop it because he broke the, the twist knob off and it was literally stuff in my garage that, you know, I wasn't in my office or anything. So I just sort of made this thing where I found anything metal. My philosophy was whatever I have that's silver, I will clamp. But I did the live video of me making it. So as I made it, I cut one second cuts, you know, of screwing and doing all these things on it. And I actually did it with my lips because I didn't have any way to turn the camera on and off. So if you imagine, I had like a tripod with my camera on it, looking down as I was doing this and I was tapping it with my lips to turn it on and off. It's probably the most viral video I've had. It went 5 million, 6 million views because it was me responding to him kind of a joke like, oh, I got you, you know, you're welcome. I'll save Christmas for you. And people like, in that case, seeing the inventor of Boppet create a Boppet for a celebrity that was sort of making fun of them. I later put Eminem's music in it a few days later because they have a feud going. That one didn't go over as well. People were confused. Eminem fans really like it. Anyway, if you know the whole feud, it's a very uh, reason I put the song in it. So some people are like, that's amazing. And other people are like, I'm unfollowing you. That was terrible. So I get to learn all these great words too. Like people call me bruh, which I think is one, you know, thanks bruh. I'm like, okay, little kid. Thank you as well. So I'm just trying to give you an idea why TikTok. So it'll be a lot of fun. And there's a lot going on. The only other thing I'll share here, like I told you, I'm working on this thing called the Unibop. Yeah. Why are you making the Unibop? Well, because it had to be done. It was to go on the front of a book that I'm writing called Take This Book and Bop It, about the history of Bop It and all the people that helped and sort of did everything we talked about. So the front of the cover, I said, I want to put a Bop It on the cover so you can actually bop the book and it'll talk to you. 
But it turns out rather than just a novelty, now the cool thing about it is it's the opposite of a puppet because it's so easy. It's for how long can you do it and how long can you annoy everyone? So when you hold it down, it gives you high score and you keep holding. So it gives you your high score, but also how many lifetime bops. Wow. And the idea is that it goes to a million, which I've calculated is pretty much impossible for anyone to ever get because it would take 10 solid days at 24 hours a day. But it does mean I'm pretty sure finally it's a game, it's one that you can't beat, but mm. you can get a lot of people trying to set records. So this is all for the Bop It For Good cause that I'm doing with Alicia, which is donating boppets to blind community where boppets been an inc incredibly important game for them to connect with kids that can see because they can both play equally Love. and also the autistic community it's boppet has been really important somehow that has connected people with autism families write me letters all the time we just want to do something where we can start to get celebrities and people all into this if you listen, there's lots of different voices in it. So the mm -hmm. idea is to see if people will contribute their voice, the simplest possible thing, plus creating maybe a TikTok trend on how who's going to set the record and yeah. really see if I can raise money with something for these causes by just creating something fun and, and it's sort of like a big event. So that's where this came out of, you know, started as a book cover. And now it's like, I think it's very tiktok Instagram friendly. It's the mistakes that make the hits, right? And maybe this is another one of those, you know, it was meant for the book and now it's gone this other path. Totally. I think mm -hmm. that maybe that's probably the classic I'd say for everyone who's ever invented something probably remembers there was some moment where the innovation absolutely wasn't the first thing they thought of. It, it was, or it might've been sort of related to it, but there was something that was, because to be outside the box, it seems like it's nature. It has to be something that wasn't obvious. So you'll usually think of it in process and pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. This is just supposed to be a novelty button. Then, wait a minute, this is actually kind of like you could play it. Then what happens if I change voices? Oh, this could, you know, just the process is a feeling of doing it and then paying attention to the thing that goes wrong it feels like that's pretty common that you could just let the things that go wrong go oh i better fix that or you could pay attention and go that's it yeah i love it we're gonna put the link to your bop it for good in the show notes of course thank you so much for everything you shared today this was a great conversation do you have anything else you want to share to wrap up or anything i think the biggest thing for me about your audience and making it in the toy industry. It isn't just about you selling. I'm here because I love the people. I really do. I would have loved to have gone on to just do illustration 10 years ago or something. And even if I could have afforded to, I couldn't get away. I would have missed all the people. <laughs> and all my friends who are inventors, all of the people at companies that I just think it's the most amazing group of people. And that's really why you should be in it. If you love this kind of being part of this community, and you open to helping each other and enjoying the good and the bad. And I'd say that's really the most important reason to be here. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank <laughs> you, Dan. It was a pleasure having you today. Well, my pleasure. I really like to talk. So this was good for me. <laughs> well, there you have it, Toy People. My interview with Dan Klitzner. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
Now, if you are a part of my Facebook group, then you might have already heard this episode when it was unfolding live. That's right. We've been going live in the Facebook group to record live podcast episodes. So if you want to be notified next time we have a live podcast episode available, make sure you head over to thetoycoach.com forward slash community, and that will take you to where you can sign up to join our Facebook group. Before I jump into the summary of today's episode, I've got to give a quick shout out to Joe Ciola and my fiance, Christian Castro, for making this episode possible. Now, if it weren't for you guys, I likely wouldn't have connected with our guests today. So thank you so much for making that happen. Okay, so let's recap some super important points that I want you to take away. What was really interesting that we uncovered in today's episode, number one, is how a fun play item could actually come out of doing the opposite of creating ergonomic design, designing something uh, as simple and easy for the user to use to complete a certain task. Dan did the opposite when he created Bop It. He made something more challenging to complete a task, and that actually made it more fun. The second takeaway I want you to pull from today's episode is how mistakes can make hit products. So if you go into a pitch meeting and you're pitching a doll and someone says, what if it wasn't a doll? I want you to, instead of getting upset and wanting to walk out that meeting to really take that criticism in because both myself and Dan, when we had the light bulb moment in one of our big inventions was when somebody said, what if it didn't do the thing you were intending it to do? Pay attention to those moments that might feel like mistakes or changes of direction that you weren't expecting for your innovation and see it as an opportunity to perhaps turn it into a hit product down the line. The third thing I want you to take away is depending on the type of product that you're pitching, your pitch process, the way that you pitch that invention might need to change. What is most important to show in your invention? Is it the function? Is it the fun? Is it how the user feels? Make sure that whatever pitch materials you decide to move forward with, that they're designed to help the person on the other end of the Zoom call or at the other end of the meeting room table to experience your game, your toy, or your IP for the joy that you know it can bring to kids or adults. Remember, toy people, the power is not just in your idea, but it's in your execution of it. It's in the network that you build, the pitch materials that you create, and the time that you bring it all together. If you want to grab the links to Bop It for Change, head over to thetoycoach.com forward slash 110 to grab all of the links mentioned in today's episode. As always, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I know your time is valuable and that there are a ton of podcasts out there. So it means the world to me that you tune into this one until next week. I'll see you later toy people. Thanks for listening to Making It in the Toy Industry podcast with Agile Wade. Head over to thetoycoach.com for more information, tips, and advice. Hey, are you an aspiring toy inventor or toy entrepreneur? Then you should check out Toy Creators Academy, the first of its kind online program designed to help you develop and pitch your toy ideas. Head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn more.